Today, I talk to Robert Evel. Robert has more than 20 years of experience managing risks across 30 sectors and more than 50 countries. Before founding Ethics Insight in 2019, he worked in roles focused on investigations, intelligence gathering, crisis response, counterterrorism, and ethics and compliance and advisory support. Robert has a postgraduate diploma in behavioral analysis and investigative interviewing, as well as he is a certified fraud examiner. Robert uses this experience, seeing what works in high-stakes frontline situations to help organizations better predict, prevent, and respond to risks. And as always, when I talk to my guests, I'm interested on what is not obvious, what is not written in the curriculum. I want to learn more about the human who impacts corporate integrity and in this specific case, also ethics. Let us learn from Robert's experience when it comes to corporate integrity, ethics, in his field of expertise with global countries and global organizations. I'm glad to have you here spending the next minutes together with us. Integrity, fraud, non compliance, and cybersecurity. Would you like to understand the root causes, detect threats, and take measurements to protect the most precious assets? As a leader, you need to be prepared and stay actionable in the event of an incident. Sonia Sternemann talks in her podcast, The Human Factor. Corporate integrity matters. To leaders and entrepreneurs who want to have impact, foster corporate integrity, and act as role models. As an international expert for corporate governance and integrity, entrepreneur, and independent board member, she knows the challenges. Let her inspire you. So, Rupert, witnessing what you are doing in the environment of ethics is impressive. So, thank you very much for being here with us today. And also, as you are aware that I'm very interested in the person behind all the roles you already have, I will also focus on you, especially, your different roles you have, the current one and the ones you had in the past, and your own personal experience when it comes to corporate integrity, and of course, in your case, also when it comes to ethics. So not only me, but also our listeners are curious to learn more from you and about you. Thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. So as we agreed already before, it would be great to have really a kitchen table conversation. And we have so many topics we would like to cover together. So my first one is, why are people not yet investing in prevention as they do afterwards when they have to really make sure that things are going to be cleaned up? That's a great question. Uh, there's so many layers you could put to it, but if I try and start simple and then maybe we can expand, I think there's um, a sort of fear of how much work it's going to entail, uh, which is misguided often because it's often less work than you anticipate. But I think it's a bit like um, when, um, you know, if you think about trying to maintain your health as you age, there's all this advice out there about you shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't eat that, you should do this, you should got to get up at this time, you've got to fast. So there's so much overwhelm of information that some people just almost give up. And I think in a, um, some senses, risk is like that. If risk is overwhelming or if there are so many things that you think you need to do, uh, it's almost easier to just focus in a more reactive mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's a bit, a bit of that sort of, fear of the unknown fear of how much work um, 
not really knowing where to start, I guess. That's a great analogy. Yeah, with the medicine, medical part we have, we all have, and we all know what we should do. And I think it's maybe exactly the same with the risks we have all around us. So if you, with the experience you have, and you have a lot of experience in different roles also in the past, so where would you think is it best to start with? I know it's not easy to say for all industry and all you know different corporations, but I think there are there are some I think there are some some easy parts to start with which are not even taking too much time, not yeah. not big investments. Oh, I agree entirely. I mean, I think um, the best place to start is well, what are your values? Who do you want to be mm-hmm. uh, as an organization? Because if your risk framework doesn't match and doesn't hang off your values, then people are going to struggle to understand it. So. The um, the the next stage is just, I like simple questions. So what do you do? Where do you do it? Who do you do it with? How do you do it? And th- those questions will immediately triage down the, the data set. So to give a practical example, I have a friend who runs a, a business in Australia that's B, B2B, uh, all online transactions for the most part, because it's a, a subscription model, so very price predictable. And he phoned up and said, oh, I've got to put in an anti-bribery and corruption framework. I said, why? You are domestic Australia, B2B, um, all transacted by subscriptions. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, because the banks told me. I was like, ah, okay. Uh, but what you hold hundreds of thousands of um, people's personal data. What are you doing about data privacy and cyber? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, I've got insurance for that. And I think that's a sort of a common um, mm-hmm. Issue is that the sometimes people it's and I, I can resonate to it because resonate with it because when I started this business the I didn't know anything about marketing or about the financial side on and when you read information out there you can get misled very quickly because everyone has their thing that they think you should do or they're trying to sell like uh, oh it's uh, you've got to get sales leads you've got to uh, push email campaigns you've got to be running this advert or that campaign. Um, when actually, if somebody just sits down with you and goes, well, who do you want to be? Um, what do you do? Where do you do it? How do you do uh, And those questions, you can quite quickly take that risk universe down into something a bit more manageable. Well, thank you very much, because that's exactly also what we see, you know, for example, when it comes to internal control systems, sometimes I really think organizations, they just have too many controls, but not the right ones. And I always tell, hey, please shrink it back to the real controls you need to have to protect your environment, your, to protect your business. And I think it's exactly the same when it comes to risks. Yeah, I agree. And, yeah. and I, yeah, and I, the, I was trying to, I was having this discussion with my brother. He works in um, impact investing in uh, environmental and sustainability space. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a different approach to to risk. And the, so I was trying to think of well, what analogy would make sense there. And I think, imagine with any organization, it's like building a home. Um, it's a bit difficult to build that home if you don't understand your environment. Uh, so does there, is there a lot of rain? Are we on the side of a hill? Is the ground stable? All of these basic sort of considerations. And then we can make better decisions about, as you said, which controls to put into that building. But the bit that often then gets missed is, well, who's inhabiting that building? How do they use that space and what what does that and that's the culture bit and assessing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and culture eats compliance. So uh, assessing how people interact with the space. So, for example, you can have the best security system and if you like in your home. But if you've got two kids who leave the doors and windows open the whole time 
and they leave um, you know, the house at predictable times every day, then you become an easier target. So I think it's having recognizing the risk is it doesn't need to be complex, but you do need to factor in those three dimensions, your external environment, your internal controls, and your culture. And if you don't have that sort of 3D perspective, you're you know that you are going to be wasting a lot of time and money. Absolutely. And you know, at the end, it's always a human factor. That's what you said with the kids, you know, leaving the door open. It's okay. at the end, it's it's us defining what is the risk what are the controls and do we take care of that you know also compliance we have so many or there are so many compliance manual out there it doesn't help if you're not following them you know it's not that we don't have the information it's not that we don't have the data and also the, the structures uh, or the infrastructure to do so but if you're not following it we, we, we cannot protect our assets not at all well i agree and i also think there's a um a lot of the people in compliance they um are very, very highly educated and they understand complex concepts implicitly. And then sometimes they try and pass too much of that on. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is that if you look at something like health and safety, um, so I've worked with a lot of organizations where they have ex exceptional health and safety. They don't spend time explaining to people before they go on a construction site, if uh, something heavy falls on your head, this is the cranial injury you can expect, and this is the likelihood. Is They don't sort of explain the methodology. They just say, wear a hard hat on site at all times. And I think sometimes the we we miss that in compliance. We're busy explaining like, the, well, this is the law and this is how it captures you. And this is all of the um, areas rather than focusing on well, what behavior are we trying to shape? And that that should be the departure point. Yes, the behavior, but also the consequences, you know, and it's not, you know, if I think if people would be or also employees would be aware that they are putting our assets at risk, they could also understand why they should behave like that. But often, you know, as you said, we just go back and explain the laws, which you now people don't want to understand. They don't want to hear any, how should I say, any other compliance issues because they don't care, because they think they, I'm not saying they don't care because they don't like to, but um, they have to fulfill their job. Yeah, but if is... they understand how they put the organization at risk, I think it's much easier Oh, also, if you have different kinds of industries, so it's easy, it's easier to understand why they should do that. And we have to make sure that we can bring it down and explain it as we could, would do that to a five-year-old child. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there's, there is an overwhelm. And I sympathize hugely because if you think about like the past few years and even with current geopolitical events, so sanctions and data mm -hmm. privacy and um, supply chain transparency and ESG and uh, sustainability reporting. There's so many requirements coming out that the there's a great quote. I think um, I, I think it's Mark Twain, which is uh, I didn't have time to write you a short essay, so mm -hmm. I wrote you a long one instead. And I, the when we're we're dealing with such overwhelm, it, it is incredibly challenging actually to dis distill some of that complexity down just into the messages that. Um, Fun different functions need. So the, the salespeople will need a different message to um, the logistics or uh, purchasing. And so I think the, that it's a, it can seem um, a little bit overwhelming, but my experience is, is it's once you start that process, you really can build momentum um, mm -hmm. quite quickly and you also start to see what works. And I think one of the things that we always need to do is look to our left and our right and go, well, who else does this well? So who else communicates um, and gets people to behave the way they want? 
Often marketing is very good at that. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, well, what marketing do you respond to? Why do you respond to it? Is it a fear of missing out? Is it, um, you know, the just straight up fear? Is it desire? And so that the, the, then you start to understand the different emotional cues used in that. And I, I've seen some really good um, um, cyber stuff uh, in that area as well, because they don't have time to explain to us what malware is or what a firmware hack or so that they they just have to focus on the behaviors and the, mm -hmm. as you said the consequences i think that um that once you get started with that 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 and that's certainly been my experience the past few years that's some of the most fun parts of what we do the behavioral side trying to work out how to reach people how to communicate with them in words that resonate and in a way that um is informative but also de-risks the organization Absolutely. No, I, I just think back to a recent project we have. We, um, we implemented a code of conduct for one of our clients in the in the construction business. And, you know, it was such a great process because they thought about what are the values we really have? What do we need to put into our code of conduct? And how are we going to um, communicate and implement it? And then at the end, it was an event for, for 250 people. And it was really nice to see how they understood how they should behave. And they all supported what they have to do now because we exactly explained what could happen if you're not doing that. You know, how are we going to harm ourselves, our organization, our partners, and, and the environment? And it was not just a paper. You know, they also they also started and said, okay, just copy paste from our um, competitors and said, hey, no, guys, it's not that these are not your values. And it took much longer, it took more than a year to come up with that code of conduct, but now they are all proud of it. And it's, yeah. a, it's not a living document. It's just a living concept they have now. And from now, I think whatever they do right now, they always um, think about, uh, does, it, does it really match to our code of conduct? And it's not a code of conduct, you know, as we use it in also, in, I think, you know, in the regulatory environment somehow, but they know it's, it's our, these are our values. And it's the culture they really shaped now over the last 12 to 15 months. Well, I mean, that's interesting. It's, I guess it sounds like um, that you, you're giving people a sort of sense of belonging um, because <laughs> most people, when they go to work or when they wake up, they, they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to be the bad person. So that, And I think we, the, we have to remember that. We have to, um, on the, as you started the conversation with the preventative side, the best sort of prevention is getting people on your side. Um, and the um, the there's a lot of research out there about the more we have agency, um, the more we have control, the more engaged, the happier we are. It's not exactly rocket science. So in the process you're talking about, where you're bringing people into the creation of a document that is theirs and speaks to them, then of course they're going to feel more agency over it rather than just it getting written by a couple of people in the legal department who've yep. gone and reviewed a bunch of other code of conduct. So now that I, I see that process starting um, more as well. And it's, it's interesting. It's, it's fantastic because then we actually start to, as you say, have something that speaks to that organization. And, you know, it, it was also interesting. It's not a document because they also have the code of conduct. You know, the content of the code of conduct is also in the bathroom of the organization. So they have it all overspread. And it's it's so nice to see it's it's not a document. Of course, you can have it as a PDF, but it's not that they talk about a, um, a document. It's not a, a policy. It's a code of conduct. And for them, you know, it's a different um, perception they have now of how they would like to behave and treat others. And 
it's for me prevention is more the awareness part and the, the more aware we are or people are the better we are protected and the better we prevent ourselves and that's also the reason why i say prevention is not as costly as people think no it's, it's really not so that there's a project i'm working on at the moment where what you said just triggered a, a memory was we're conducting a, a sort of survey and the question categories if you like are knowledge under uh, sorry access understanding um accountability and trust and so the what we're trying to understand is uh, because there's a relatively sophisticated controls environment in this organization but sometimes there's still issues so is that that people um don't know what to do uh, because there's just too much information they don't know where to find it they can't um, actually speak to a human when they want to um, um get guidance is it about accountability that there's maybe a lost um you know some organizations like passing around problems and maybe the leaders don't sort of step up and get involved in some of the thorny issues is it about uh, access so you know the, there's not just speak up framework but um you know are there ethics ambassadors there are people you can go and speak to are managers willing to hear things like i don't know what to do or if we do this um you know the, we are going to increase our risk and then finally the trust do they trust that um the organization walks the walk that the leaders uh, mean what they say but also if they speak up they'll be protected that everyone is equal under the law so all of these things are very you know implicit knowledge to someone like you but what's very fascinating is not just ask the answers to the questions because that really helps you focus in on well what what do we how do we need to reach these people uh it's how they answer so for example there was one question about as i was writing this article on this last night there was, um our leaders adhere to our business integrity standards and people were taking 20 seconds to answer that question. The whole survey was taking like three, four minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and, but that question, and, and people were dropping out on that question. They didn't want to answer it. And so that tells me a huge amount. Not mm -hmm. the, the responses will be informative, but how people answer that question is also very, very important to understand. So as you said, the, the, that the third leg, the external, the internal, but that sort of culture piece, can be hugely time saving because now we understand where people are and how to reach them. It's just emotional intelligence, but at an organizational level. Absolutely. And what you say right now that it takes much more time for them to answer that specific question, it also show, um, um, shows that you know we need to create that safe space yeah. to talk about it and also to answer it. Because I think there are still fear around the organizations really speaking up if something happens, especially on the higher level in the hierarchies. And um, I think that's an issue we have. We also now, after the last three years, you know, people really used to, were not used to go back to the offices anymore. And I think culture also, some of the cultures were hit by the last two, two to three years because a lot of people changed also the workplaces. They changed organizations. They are not, they don't feel that belonging you mentioned before. And we have to make sure that we come back to that, no matter how, the settings are going to be because I think we are not going to be back to the office 100%, not at all, but we need to find new ways to make sure that people belong to the organization, to the culture, and also feel and understand that safe space we create for them. Yeah. Yes, no, that, that's a really good point. And yeah, no, I, I agree. I've, I've seen some sort of data along the, you know, the past three years that uh, indicates that it also indicates in some sectors where there's they've been quite problem prone uh, people are actually more comfortable speaking up now because they don't have to be in an office where you go and walk to the you know hr or legal and people go hey what are you doing who are you talking to what's that about so that i think that for 
some organizations um that distance might actually have helped with the sort of the um providing people the the the, the comfort to come forward but for most of them as you said particularly people who join new organizations they're creating that sense of belonging but also mm -hmm. trust and access mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. because it's it, it's it's it, it's i imagine i'm not in a large organization but if i had identified a possible ethical issue um what am i going to do go to the intranet um and then look up who to speak to in compliance or do i go straight to the hotline you know that i think there's um we need to rethink maybe how to make ourselves more accessible so there's a, a, a guy who's in Switzerland actually called uh, Charles Barry, who, who um, he was um, telling me about a compliance manager he'd worked with in the past who, um, when he was new into the job and that this compliance manager was had a marketing background, realized that there was an accessibility problem. So he just gave people his mobile number. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, and you know, no, it's, also, it's also a sign of trust. If you give people your private uh, mobile number, I think it's very helpful. And what you say now, uh, being accessible, it's so important, especially after the last three years, because I think we also missed that somehow. That's also what I see. People want to get in contact um, again because yeah. we, we didn't have the, um, had the possibility over the last three years or less than we were used to. And before it was not, how should I say, that people did not want to access, but I think it really changed now because, because people also want to speak and explain what's going on. Yeah. Yes, no, I agree. Interesting. So, but one question I also have. So we talked already a little bit before about risk intelligence. And um, I think there are also personal parts where you said, okay, I'm risk intelligent because I do whatever you, you do. Do you have some examples on your side about your personal risk intelligence and how you use that in your life? Yeah, the, I think the main observation is it changes. So the and I th think maybe that's helpful for organizations is as you grow, um, as you mature, as your demographics change and your conditions change, so should your risk tolerance, your risk appetite and your values. And so if I, I was thinking back to, uh, you know, I've just moved back from after 12 years in Asia. And when I was first there, uh, I had a very high um, risk tolerance. I would go into environments that were perhaps um, somewhat sort of hostile. I would just turn up in somewhere without really any sort of bookings and then I just rent a motorbike and just go wherever I wanted. I, I went diving on numerous occasions solo um, without buddies, you know, all kinds of things that perhaps in when I look back now were certainly on the, you know, the they were on the higher risk side. Um, but then what changed was I had a, a family and then you suddenly have to actually consider other people and the consequences of your um, actions. And so then um, I think what I tend to do to deal with the overwhelm, because there's lots of things that people, you know, like, for example, if you just think about the pandemic and everything from vaccinations to um, the uh, traveling and getting separated from each other, there's so many considerations for a family about what you should or shouldn't do. And the, the easiest prism I have as a first way of cutting down the decision is, will the consequence matter in a year? Like we think about the scenarios for any risk decision and you quickly think, well, what are the potential scenarios here? Uh, will it matter in a year? If it matters in a year, then that's something we need to sort of focus on as a, a individually or as a family to resolve. Mm -hmm. um, if it doesn't, then uh, I, I put it through the, I think, a simple prison. Is it important? Is it urgent? Uh, if it's neither, then don't worry about it. And so I think the, the 
with risk, it's all about triage. You have yep. to, as you said at the beginning, there's such a big world of, uh, that you could be worried about. So the best thing is to start to triage down that data set to those things that are relevant to who you are, what you do, how you live. And then it becomes a, a little bit more, um, a little bit easier. But the, the one thing I'd add is we've moved to, you know, the, the, yes, okay, I was born here, but after 12 years, the country's changed a lot. And the rest of my family have never lived in this country. And so the when you move into the unknown, and there's a, an awful lot of things that have changed, the um, in that situation, the crisis response framework is very, very helpful. And I'm not saying everything's a crisis. Yeah. Um, it has a, a applicability for any unknown decisions um, uh, or you know, where you, you're not entirely sure. And so that's it's very simple. What is the fact? Often that's very small. Mm -hmm. What is assumption? Of those assumptions, which ones are prudent or sensible uh, and which ones are sort of are more on the wild side? And then we start to discount them. How might we test those assumptions? And then we look at the scenarios. What's the best case? Um, what's most likely? And you can consider outliers if you want. And that cycle becomes very, very quick. And then we can start to sort of, it's almost in, intuitive. And the when I was going through the um, the past few years, I'm always looking for lessons from people in different industries. And I read a book by, I think the lady's name is Annie Duke, and she was a, like a world champion poker player. Mm -hmm. And uh, the decisions she makes at the poker table are very similar. Um, and I thought, yeah. oh, that's interesting. That's so that you know, they it's it's a it's it has multiple applicability. It doesn't have to be in a sort of negative crisis adversarial thing it's just when you're dealing with unknowns absolutely and you know for me it's also it's always the actionability you know i decide to make sure that i'm still actionable and it's the same like the crisis um behavior and it's not a crisis as such but i think if we have that framework also for us in a personal in our personal decision making processes it always helps yes yep. and the, the, absolutely. the other thing <laughs> I, I really learned recently and it's a mistake i'd made for years was when you're trained, I don't know about you, but when I was trained in risk assessment, it, um, there was a, the obsession around probability and impact. And mm. the probability was often done with words. And if I say to you, um, you know, even though you're a fluent English speaker, you, you may have a different interpretation of what somewhat likely means. It could yes. be a huge range. Whereas, So that just simply asking whether it's in a professional setting or the family, like, well, what percentage um, because that's 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 the universal language, the numbers. And the other thing that um, I'm finding with organizations going into unknowns is impact in a compliance sense is incredibly difficult to estimate. So you get a whistleblower call that says, oh, um, there's a potential conflict between two employees. Well, what's the impact of that? Nobody knows at that nope. stage. It could be nothing. It could be a significant fraud. Um, it could be that they you know, have a relationship with a key supplier and there's no alternative supplier and it's going to cause massive business disruption. There's so many parameters. So go back to basics. When you're trying to think about the impact, um, start with the most important thing. You know, so people, planet, profit, yeah. put it in that yeah. order. Is, yeah. is there potential harm to people? Uh, could this cause, cause harm to our communities and the environment? Um, and then is this going to cause potentially significant financial harm in, in that, that order? And then you can do away with, I, I see so many of these risk assessment tables where it's like this risk would create a potential, you know, 
one to two percent dip in share price like how are you how do you know that there, there's so many organizations that have you know. are, i think there are so many organizations or most of them they really struggle with the impact because it's also difficult for us but as you said if you have parameters you you know already in advance like people plan for pro and profit then you know what you have to measure but otherwise impact also when it comes to reputation it's so difficult and we cannot predict that yeah no and then and, uh, also, but, but let's say pick something as simple as anti-bribery or corruption. So w- what is the impact? Is the impact getting caught? Is the impact not paying the bribe and losing the business? Uh, is the impact re- uh, refusing to pay a bribe and then having um, the police raid you because you're operating in a country where the, you know, the, the rule of law is weak? The I think the the I'm not saying that um, you shouldn't try and do the impact analysis, but I, I, it just as you said right at the beginning, if we're not listening to the people on the front line who know the answers to a mm-hmm. lot of these questions, mm-hmm. then it becomes an incredibly theoretical exercise. So yep. central, yep. centrally managed risk assessments where we're trying to theorize around financial or share price or um, you know business interruption days, I, I think create a huge amount of work for very little value for people. Whereas Absolutely. if you just access people with a few surveys or simple questions, focus groups, workshops, couple of follow-up interviews, you get um, a much better output. And also the other thing is you start to get risk ownership. If you're bringing people on the front line into the risk assessment process, then we're hopefully getting towards that holy grail for compliance, which is where the organization has greater risk ownership of the frontline risk mm-hmm. instead of relying on compliance as this sort of blocker. And as you said, I also think we need a much more holistic approach to talk about risk, risk measurement, and it's not only the impact and the likelihood, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> but to, Robert, Robert, I think we have to take uh, take the, our next um, session very soon and talk uh, talk together. It was great to have you here, and thank you very much for the contribution of today. And it would be great when we could also go on with another um, maybe um, session in a few months or so, really talk about uh, what do we understand about the holistic risk assessment. It would be great if you have time. So um, it, it was a pleasure to learn from your experience, and I wish you all the best for your future, but also when it comes to ethics, culture, and corporate integrity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This was another episode of the Human Factor Corporate Integrity Matters. Following the motto, Corporate Integrity Secures and Empowers Individuals and Organizations. Thank you for listening. My name is Sonja Stierniemann and I'm your host. Stay curious, actionable and a role model. Take care and goodbye. Would you like to learn more, meet peers and getting qualified? So visit the website Corporate Integrity Concepts or Corporate Integrity Academy. Or do you think this podcast could be interesting for someone you know? Sharing is caring and we are always happy to welcome your peers to our community. And if you like this episode, subscribe and don't miss any of the future ones. The show notes are, of course, enriched with the relevant information and your connection via any of the social media channels is highly appreciated and will be answered. Promised. And please do not forget... Topics of your interest or interview partners are highly welcome. Just send me a note on any of the channels you know.